Hey y'all, thanks for tuning in to this week's recording of Redeemer Church of Knoxville's Sunday Sermon. We're really glad to have you with us because we know that there are a million different podcasts that you could be listening to right now. So we're thankful that you've chosen to spend some of your day with us. We hope that this recording will be an encouragement to you and that God, by his spirit, will use his word to remind you of Jesus' love. If you would like to reach out to us, we would love to hear from you. To do that, please email us at office at redeemerknoxville.org. We also want to give a quick thank you shout out to Evie Andrus and Parker Green, who you hear playing our awesome intro and outro music here each week. Lastly, if you'd like to support Redeemer and her mission to Urban and University Knoxville, please visit www.redeemerknoxville.org and look for the little give button in the top right corner. Thank you so much, and here is this week's sermon. Well, if you have a Bible and you would like to follow along with me, you can do so by turning to uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We're going to be looking this morning at verses 1 through 12. You can follow along with me in the Pew Bible that's somewhere near you. Maybe you brought a Bible. It's also provided for you uh, in your bulletin. If you'd like to follow along, you can do that. Do you want to welcome you to Redeemer this morning? It's great to have you with us. My name's Sean Slate. I'm the pastor here, and we're so glad to have you this morning because we know that there are a million different things that you could be doing this morning. For instance, you could be at home making breakfast uh, or brunch uh, for your mom uh, since it's Mother's Day. You could be at home re-watching a high school musical after that fantastic West Hills Elementary production uh, and Sharpay was amazing. Or you could be uh, taking your mother uh, over to Lindsey Nelson uh, Baseball Stadium for that top 20 border war between Kentucky and the Vols. Uh, it's going to be a sweep today, we hope. Right, Stephen? I don't know if Stephen's in here. Kentucky fan, Mac. I don't know. Yeah, sweet. Anyway, uh, but you're not, uh, y'all are here. And so I want to thank, except for, uh, yeah, anyway, thank you for coming. And the reality is that there really is nothing better that you could do with your time uh, than to worship Jesus, consider his claims upon your life, and think about the power and the beauty of his salvation. And so I do want to thank you for joining. Welcome to Redeemer. What is Redeemer? Well, Redeemer is a church, and what that means is that we're a community of people who are trying to learn how to love God, and we're trying to learn how to love our neighbor. And fundamentally, what we believe is that Jesus is God, he's the Messiah, and he's entered into the world to die for our sins and to reveal the love of the Father. And so every week as his people, we gather together in his name to worship him so that we might learn to rest in the love that God has for us in Christ. And as we rest in his love, we then become a people who delight to gather together in community, going to baseball games, watching plays together, uh, going, hanging out in people's backyards, letting them know we're in their backyard. Uh, but we love to do those things. Mostly, uh, we like to gather together and read the Bible and pray together so that we can remind each other of that great love that God has has for us in Jesus. And as we rest in his love and as we remind each other of his love, we then become a people who delight to gather together in service so that together we might reflect the love of God to our family, to our friends, to our neighbors who are here in Urban University in Knoxville, and hopefully in some way it would spill out into the entire earth, right? That's who we are, that people are trying to learn how to love God, trying to learn how to love our neighbor as we rest, as we remind, and as we reflect. And so to help us do that during this Easter season, we're in this series that we've entitled Resurrection Life, Reflections on First Thessalonians. And you'll remember that every chapter in the book of First Thessalonians mentions the resurrection or the return of Jesus. And this is important because what Thessalonians is trying to remind us of is this, is that the resurrection and return of Jesus ought to shape your life. 
They ought to shape the way we live in this world. And so back at Easter, we talked about the resurrection. Then we talked about the resurrection work of God, the resurrection ministry of God, the resurrection word of God. Last week, we talked about the resurrection comfort of God. This morning, we want to think about a resurrection and sanctification of God. Next week, we'll talk about the hope uh, of resurrection. And then finally, we'll think about uh, the resurrection and the community of God. Uh, so anyway, this morning we'll think about sanctification. So with that in mind, let's look together at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you might walk and to please God just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. The word of the Lord. Would you pray with me now for the teaching? Heavenly Father, we are thankful uh, for this, your word, that you are a God not hidden, nor are you silent, but you are one who delights to make yourself known to your people. You've done so in your word, by your spirit, and ultimately you make yourself known in the person and work of Jesus. And so it's our prayer now this morning that as we attend unto this, your word, that you by your spirit would attend unto us, that we might see lovely things of you in this, your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, it seems to me that as we make our way through the world, we are constantly being told stories about the nature of reality. We're constantly being told stories about what matters in the world, what is valuable in the world, what it means to be a human, how the world is supposed to work, what we ought to care about and think about, even what we ought to do. Uh, the Cambridge professor Simeon Zoll says that most stories that we listen to are secular stories. And when he says secular stories, he doesn't mean pejoratively. He doesn't mean it pejoratively. What he just means is that the stories that so often we listen to could be true whether God exists or not. That they could be true whether God exists or not. So for instance, he says, you all know the financial story. 
So we live in a financial world. Finances are important. We have financial advisors. We go visit our financial advisor. And the question that is before us as we visit with our financial advisor is this, is how much money do I have? Uh, But maybe a better question is, how much money do I need? How much money do I need today? How much money am I going to need when my children go to college? How much am I going to need in order to retire? And so when we have these decisions in front of us, right, and we think about the financial story, our biggest question that we need to answer is this, what's the return of investment? What's the return of investment? And this isn't necessarily bad to think about. It's not necessarily a bad story when we make our decisions. But if money is the only story that we think about, right, then we're in trouble. Because the constant pursuit of money uh, destroys communities. And it turns individuals into commodities. And it turns communities into markets. And then value is always determined by the bottom line and by our possessions. And so it's very important for us to remember that there was another financial planner who gave us different financial advice. And he said, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Come follow me. Right? Two different stories. Right? Finances are an important part of the story, but there are other stories that, that come to us that we uh, tend to follow. So, for instance, in a technological age, uh, we value this thing called efficiency. So every program, every act, every relationship, every interaction has got to maximize productivity. Right? Everything needs to be efficient. But as a friend of mine recently wrote, he said, efficiency entails exclusion. Efficiency excludes the weak, the stragglers, the strugglers, and the despairing. It is not efficient to leave the 99 to find the one. And so under the disguise of boundaries and self-care, we are told to cut out those who are draining. We're told to cut off those who are toxic. We're told to avoid those who don't give us life. We're told to stop wasting our time on anyone who's holding us back. And so sadly, in a culture that's seeking maximum efficiency, our lives are becoming more and more disjointed, right? More and more separated and more and more thin. There are other stories that we listen to. Maybe we foreground the story of psychology, uh, which is a great uh, field, uh, but we are constantly looking inside ourselves, trying to figure out what we want, what we think, and what we feel. And as we turn to this story, we constantly sing with 1996 Sheryl Crow, if it makes me happy, right, it can't be that bad. And, and maybe in our constant quest for happiness, what we're finding is that we are becoming more and more disappointed and more and more sad. Now, I don't want you to hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that these are bad stories in and of themselves. I'm just saying that these stories are all incomplete. And the reality is that there are more stories that could actually come in and flood into our lives to help us make our decisions. But it seems to me that most of the stories that we're listening to uh, are only taking into account horizontal realities. Only the horizontal realities. And we're ignoring the vertical reality. And so maybe, as we think about our lives, uh, maybe the vertical reality 
might also have something to say about what we value and about what we love and about what we pursue. So what might God, the vertical reality, have to say about the way we interact with the world? I think the first question of our Westminster Shorter Catechism is incredibly helpful. And we ask this question, what is man's chief end? Right, what is man's chief end? In other words, right, what is the purpose? Right, what is the goal? What is most important to humanity and to life in this world? And the answer is this, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. What is man's chief end? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. I think it's a great answer. It's an amazing answer. But what would that look like? Like, what might that mean? Well, uh, I think this passage before us helps us. Think about this. Look at verse 2 and 3. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. This is the will of God, your sanctification. So here is the answer to the big question. What is God's will for your life? God's will for your life is that you would be sanctified. Now, what does that mean? Well, the Westminster Shorter Catechism is helpful as well here. It defines sanctification as the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. It's a lot, but essentially what it means is this, is that sanctification is God's work of making us holy. You see it in our passage that we just read. You see it in verse 5, that each one of you know how to control his body in holiness. Right? You see it again in verse 7, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Now, I think this is important because what we see here is that God is not calling the holy to himself. He is calling those who are unholy to himself so that he might make us holy. And this is very important. I think this is huge because virtually every other God and every other religion are telling us that we must be enough for him. That we must be enough, good enough, smart enough, fashionable enough, woke enough, connected enough, liked enough. Right? But the God of the Bible is a God that calls those who are not enough to himself because he is enough and he makes us enough in Jesus. You see, we have a God who calls those who are unholy to himself to make them holy. Now, we often hear this word holy and then we fill up that word holy with all kinds of meanings. And so I would assume each one of you has your own list of what is holy and a list of things that are unholy. And then maybe many of you, like when we were in Sunday school, taught to define holiness as being set apart from sin. But I'm not so sure that's the best definition. 
Sinclair Ferguson, a theologian, says this, though we tend to define holiness as separate from sin, and though there may be a lot of truth in this, it is the wrong place to start. Because if God is eternally holy, then he has always been holy. And this means that we can't define holiness as being separate from sin because holiness was something prior to the fall. Right? So what this means is that holiness is not primarily being set apart from. Holiness is primarily being set apart for. Holiness is primarily God's pure, perfect devotion of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to one another. Right? Holiness is devotion, utter, complete, eternal commitment. And so to be holy means that we are no longer separate from uh, God, but to be holy means that we are now committed to God, devoted to God, have been brought near, have been brought close to God. And so it seems to me that it's really important to notice this because holiness is not so much about separation as it is about closeness. Holiness is not so much an abstract set of rules and regulations that we can check off and then be declared holy. Holiness is primarily relational. It is about a personal love, commitment, and devotion to God. And we as God's people who have been called by him to himself are to be holy because he calls us holy. Right? We are to be holy because our God is holy. We are to be holy because God is holy. We are to be committed because God is committed. We are to be faithful because God is faithful. We are to be devoted because God is devoted. And so holiness then manifests itself in that great commandment of loving God and loving our neighbor. And it manifests itself in loving God and neighbor because our commitment to God, right, flowing out of his commitment to us, then shapes all of our commitments in this world. And so to boil down sanctification, we can think about it in light of something we say every week here at Redeemer. Redeemer is a community of people who are trying to learn to love God and trying to learn to love our neighbor, and the reason we say trying is because sanctification is never complete this side of Christ's return. And the reason why sanctification is never complete is because when are we done loving? When are we complete with our devotion? When is all of that stuff over? When is love finished? Right? And so this is why theologians talk about progressive sanctification meaning that we grow in our love, or the way that Paul talks about it in this passage, that we would do it more and more. Right, you see it in verse 1, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. You see, the Christian life is fundamentally a relational life. The Christian life is not a series of techniques. It's not a list of do's and don'ts. It is fundamentally a life that is lived, verse 1, to please God. 
It is a life lived to please God. And this is important because we can think about Christianity as a, a list of boxes to check. And we want to check the boxes to keep God off of our back. And so if we think we check this box, then we think God won't bother us. And so we go to church on Sunday so that God won't bother us on Monday, right? And we give money so that God won't care about the way our credit card statements. Or as Jack Johnson used to sing, we think that singing on Sunday is going to save our souls now that Saturday is through. That's not Christianity. Christianity actually seeks to draw near to God, Like Christianity actually wants God involved in the entirety of our lives. Christianity seeks to love him, to draw near to him, to please him, to be close with him. And so therefore we pursue holiness, commitment, devotion to him, pleasing him because we actually love him. Augustine used to talk about this way. Augustine used to say, love God and do what you will. Now, in our culture, we say, we'll do what we will, and then we'll love God. But in Augustine's mind, love directs what you do. In Jesus's mind, love directs what you do. John 14, 15, if you love me, you will obey what I command. You see, what we love, right, leads us out into the world. We do what we love. Like, if I love ribs, I'm buying a smoker, right? And I'm smoking ribs and we're eating ribs, right? If I love money, I'm going to pursue whatever gives me money. If I love power, I'm going to pursue whatever gives me power, right? If I uh, love control, I will pursue whatever gives me control. If I love my spouse, I will serve her. I'll give myself to her. I will identify with her. I will long for her when we are away. And if we love God, we will pursue whatever pleases him. You see, what we love grips our hearts and then begins to shape our lives. And I want you to notice that we pursue sanctification not so much so that God will reveal himself to us, And we pursue sanctification not so that he will save us if we achieve sort of blue-level Christianity or if we sort of earn our Thessalonian bear badge. We pursue sanctification, right, because we know God. We pursue sanctification because we know him. Look what it says in verse 4. That each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. And so the implication of this verse is that we live in a certain way. We use our bodies in particular ways because we know God. This is a challenge to all of us. Because if Jesus is not shaping your life, you are either rejecting him or you do not know him. That's what he's saying. Do you know him? And if you know him, you will give your life, you will give your body to him. 
And so we live in a particular way because we know him, because we know his love, because we know he's good, because we know his devotion, because we know his faithfulness, because we know his kindness, because he has told us what is pleasing to him. We love and strive to do that which is pleasing to him. All right, so here, here's the point. Because God is holy, we must be holy. And because God has revealed himself to us, we seek to please him. And so therefore, to please him, we live, verse 4, in holy and honorable ways. And because we know him and because we love him, we then desire for other people to know him and to love him. Therefore, through our words and through our lives, we live to make him known, which seems to be the point of verse 12, so that you may walk properly before outsiders. And what I want you to see here is that a holy life is not just about you getting to heaven, and that a holy life is not just about your own private, personal piety. Holiness in God's story is a missional life. And therefore, our lives, they ought to be holy. They ought to be loving. They ought to be uh, committed and devoted to God and to our neighbor. Because God himself is loving, devoted, and committed and therefore, our lives, as those who know him, our lives are now meant to be reflections of God, this God that we know. So that through us, others might come to know him as well. And if that's not enough, right, God has also called us to holiness because he has the authority to do so. God is the God who created us, He's the God who saves us from our sins. He's the God who defeated death, rising from the dead. He's the one who has ascended into heaven, sitting at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, ruling and reigning over all things. And he is the God who says that he will come back for those who are waiting for him. And when he comes back, we will all have to stand before him. And we will all have to give an account to him. And he is the one who rights all wrongs. He's the one who then casts out all that is unholy. And he is the one who then reconciles all things to himself. And in reconciling all things to himself, he brings all things close to him, thus making everything holy. You see, we pursue holiness because we know this God. And he is good. And he is holy. And he has all authority over us and over this world. I think it's important because I think many of us would say we want to go to heaven. But it's important that we realize that all of heaven is holy. Heaven is completely, fully, eternally committed to God. And so if heaven is your longing, then today we should begin living for that thing that we long for. Today, we should begin living as those who are committed to the way that we will live forever with him. Therefore, he calls us to be holy, right? Because God is holy. But I think for many of us, when we think about holiness, somehow we think of holiness as otherworldliness. And therefore, the normal things of this world are somehow uh, unholy. 
But as you read the text, what's really interesting is that Paul's telling us the opposite. What Paul is telling us is that holiness is then worked out in the normal, Monday, everything, everyday things of this life. Holiness then gets worked out in things like sex, the church, right, and your work. That's what he says. That's what he says in verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. See again in verse 9. Now concerning brotherly love. Uh, brotherly love, it, this is another way of talking about love for the family of God. You see it again in verse 11. And to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you. Right? This is your work. And I love this because what this is showing us is that God's will for us is to be devoted to him, wholly unto him, in the normal, everyday things of this life. First, he brings up sex. Well, why? Sex is important, right? It was important. It's important to you. Uh, it was important to the Thessalonians, and, and sex was everywhere. Uh, in the day, in the Roman Empire, marriages were fundamentally about convenience, they were, a man would marry a woman so that she could take care of his house and provide a legitimate heir. And then a man would fulfill all of his desires however he wanted to. Concubines, uh, uh, mistresses, their religions were filled with prostitution. Sex was normal. And to have sex outside of marriage was normal. And the normal purpose then of sexuality was a devotion to yourself. And it was about personal pleasure and self-expression. And notice again that that has become, I think as we think about our own culture, the lens by which we understand ourselves, right? Sex is about us and it's about self-expression and freedom. And that story in the ancient world is a story that c continues today. But what I want you to see is that God is actually inviting us to something much better. You see, sex isn't just a biological urge. Right? Sex isn't just about you and your desires in this one moment. Sex is actually something that communicates a story of faithful devotion and connection and closeness. Holiness. Right? It is a gift from God that we then give to our spouse. And so we pursue faithfulness in our sexuality out of devotion to God, uh, in devotion to our spouse, and in devotion to our neighbor. Uh, which is why Paul says in verse 6, do not transgress or wrong your brother sexually. We can list a lot of ways in which we wrong our brothers and sisters sexually. He says, do not do that. Don't cheat. Don't exploit. Don't shame. Right? But commit. Be faithful. Serve and honor one another in this intimate act. And so what he's saying is that the story, uh, the story of Jesus, this, this beautiful story of God's faithful to us, faithfulness to us, then gets worked out. We have this opportunity to work out that faithfulness and closeness and commitment to one another through our sexual purity. 
And so as Christians, we pursue sexual purity not because we think sex is bad or dirty and not because uh, we can't get it and, and not because uh, we're afraid of it. We pursue purity and faithfulness because Jesus is faithful and pure. Right? Sexuality is just an opportunity for us to live out the story of Jesus' faithful devotion to us. He moves on then from sexuality to discuss brotherly love, right? You see it in verse 9. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. Now, again, this is primarily a reference to the family of God, to the church, and God's people are now committed to God's church because Jesus is committed to his church, and so we're committed to the church not because the church has uh, or, or does everything right. And we're committed to the church not because it's always so much fun and so exciting. The reality of the church is it's often boring. I mean, we do the same thing every week. We read a book, we read a passage, we sing some songs that you've been singing since you were children, right? We eat bread, we drink wine, we eat, we hang out. Try to love one another, try to help one another, and yet, like most communities, at times we fail and we hurt and disappoint one another. But we are God's family. And, uh, and because it brings the Father pleasure for his children to gather together, we gather. Right? Because it brings the Father pleasure for his children to gather, we gather. And because he is committed to us, we are committed to one another. You see, God's people love and are devoted to the church, not because the church is easy and fun and exciting, but because the church is actually the place where God's love and devotion get embodied. I've used this before, uh, but Planet Earth, season one, episode pole to pole, uh, Mother's Day illustration. You might remember the emperor penguins, right? The emperor, em, emperor penguins, they live up in Antarctica. And during the winter months, uh, the female mother penguins leave uh, for uh, warmer weather to get food while the males hunker down with the eggs and the chicks for about four months. And for those four months, the wind blows. For those four months, the sun doesn't come up. The temperatures drop to about 94 degrees Fahrenheit. And so in order to survive, these penguins, they huddle together in maybe the world's largest group hug. There are about 600,000 of these penguins that gather together and circle up. And each of them take their turn on the outside of the group hug so that they will bear, right, all of the, the elements, right, and then the ones in the middle, they enjoy all the body heat of all the others. And then they just rotate from the outside to the inside, from the outside to the inside. And at times, it gets so hot in the middle that the hug has to break so that they can warm up, or so they can cool off, and then they gather back together. But if one of the penguins, right, stands off by himself saying, I don't need y'all, you know what happens? He dead. That's what happens, right? Uh, but together, right, they survive. And it's important because we live in a culture that tells us, like, that, uh, that we can separate uh, from the crowd, tells us to live for ourselves. And what is happening is that Jesus and his holiness is inviting us to draw near 
and to commit to one another because God is committed to us. Paul then moves on from sex to the church to work. Can you see this in verse 11 and 12? Aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands. I think this is an amazing passage, an amazingly freeing passage. Because what he says is aspire to live a quiet life and mind your own business. That is not why most of us go to work. We go to work uh, to get rich. We go to work to make a name for ourselves. We go to work hoping that one day we'll become important. And because money has now become the goal of our work, uh, people are now commodities for us to use at work. Our communities are now markets. And then everything has a number. But what if human value and human dignity weren't tied to the market, right? What if we are valuable because we actually exist? What if you are valuable not so much for what you can do for me, but because you're right in front of me? What if you are valuable because God actually made you? And what if we began to work in such a way that we valued one another's gifts and we, rather than wanting to steal their gifts. What if we valued one another's gifts and then we began to see our work as God's ordained way in which we share our gifts with one another? And what if the marketplace was not seen as a place just about money, but what if the marketplace, what if our workforce actually became a network society of gifted men and women working together for the common good of our cities? rather than our own personal good. How might that change the world? It seems to me that God is calling us to do normal things. Not calling you to be better than everybody else, greater than everybody else. He's calling you to do normal things. Like to do your job and to work hard at it. To live quietly, to mind your own business, all in devotion to him. And I think that this is freeing because we live in a world that demands that we care about everything all the time. We live in a world that demands to know everyone's business so that everyone can comment on it. We live in a world where we think about ourselves as platforms to be used in order, to, in order that we can prove to people that we've never met or had a meal with that we're the right kind of people, who have the right kind of values, who value the right sorts of things. But what if we actually began to love our real live neighbors? What if we really began to put our hands in the soil of our cities so that we might bear witness to our holy God? Then maybe, uh, just maybe, uh, the holiest things that we can do in this technological age, in this efficient age, in this moneyed age, is we can put our phones down and we can work to dry the tears of those who are in front of us. And maybe, just maybe the holiest things that we then begin to give ourselves to are mundane, normal things. Like a normal life devoted to God, devoted to your family, devoted to your friends, working hard, pursuing purity with your body, getting up on Sunday morning to go to church, 
and singing the songs that we've sang since we were children. Joining a small group of people that are really awkward and they think you're awkward. Like eating the bread that we're about to eat, drinking uh, the wine that we're about to drink. Because in these small little things, what we're reminded of is that Jesus is our holy, faithful king. And because he is holy and faithful unto us, he is calling us to be holy and faithful unto him and then unto one another. And that's what this table is about. This table is showing us that our God is holy. He's drawing near to us at this table. He's devoted to us at this table. He's devoted to himself and to his purposes for the world. So much so that our Savior Jesus was willing to obey his Father to the point of death, even death on the cross. And he did it because he's committed to the Father, and he did it because he's committed to you. And because Jesus was willing to give his body for us, because Jesus' blood was spilled for us, because Jesus now feeds us with himself, because Jesus is one who will return for us, then we must be a people who are committed to him, devoted to him, holy unto him. This is the will of God. And it's modeled for us here at this table that God's holiness, his loving commitment to his children is reflected in his sacrifice for us. And so now he invites us to follow him in his holiness, devoted to him, devoted to our neighbor, and to do this more and more.